The reading is from Jeremiah 32, 1 through 3a and 6 through 15. Jeremiah received the Lord's word in the tenth year of Judah's king, Zedekiah, which was the eighteenth year of Nebuchadnezzar's rule. At that time, the army of the Babylonian king had surrounded Jerusalem, and the prophet Jeremiah was confined to the prison quarters in the palace of Judah's king. Judah's king, Zedekiah, had Jeremiah sent there. Jeremiah said, The Lord's word came to me. Your cousin, Hanamel, Shalom's son, is on his way to see you, and when he arrives, he will tell you, Buy my field in Anathoth, for by law you are next in line to purchase it. And just as the Lord had said, my cousin Hanamel showed up at the prison quarters and told me, Buy my field in Anathoth in the land of Benjamin, for you are next in line and have a family obligation to purchase it. Then I was sure this was the Lord's doing. So I bought the field in Anathoth for my cousin Hanamel and weighed out for him 17 shekels of silver. I signed the deed, sealed it, had it witnessed, and weighed out the silver on the scales. Then I took the deed of purchase, the sealed copy, with its terms and conditions, and the unsealed copy, and gave it to Baruch, Neriah's son, and Messiah's grandson, before my cousin Hanimal and the witnesses named in the deed, as well as before all the Judeans who were present in the prison quarters. I charged Baruch before all of them. The Lord of heavenly forces, the God of Israel, proclaims, Take these documents, the sealed deed of purchase along with the unsealed one, and put them into a clay container so they will last a long time. The Lord of heavenly forces, the God of Israel, proclaims, Houses, fields, and vineyards will again be bought in this land. Hi, Zao community. It is an absolute honor and privilege uh, to be part of your worship this week. Uh, a few weeks back when Jonah asked uh, if I would come do this, I didn't hesitate for a second. Uh, Jonah has been such an important friend uh, and ministry partner and mentor in my life for many years now. Uh, and I've been so inspired by and grateful for the ministry that Jonah and Cameron and all of you are doing at Zao. Uh, thank you for being Zao. And I'm also excited uh, to join the welcome party for Micah. Uh, welcome to the Zao family. Uh, so on to the message today. Today we're talking about the clash, the conflict, the confrontation and the contradiction between our economy and God's economy. And we're going to spend time in uh, biblical passages that teach us something about economics. First, we'll spend a good chunk of time uh, digging into the part of Jeremiah's story that uh, was just read. And then we'll jump around to a few other stories. We won't spend as much time in those stories, but the purpose is to begin to pull together a rough idea of some of the core principles and practices of God's economy revealed to us in Scripture. So let's get rolling. But before we can talk about Jeremiah, we have to talk about Martha. And no, I don't mean Mary's sister. I mean Martha Stewart. During the 80s and 90s, Martha Stewart became a household name. 
Her cookbooks were found uh, in kitchens around the world. She launched her own magazine, TV show, and media empire. And when her company, Martha Stewart Living, went public in 1999, she became, on paper at least, the first female self-made billionaire in the history of the United States. But something you may not know about Martha Stewart is that before she became a world-renowned chef, she was a stockbroker. Beginning in the 60s, she spent seven years trading for a Wall Street firm. But when the market hit a recession in the early 70s, she decided to call it quits and instead pursue a career in catering. And that bit of Wall Street experience on her resume makes what happened later in 2001 all the more scandalous. Stewart invested her fortune in uh, many places. And one of those investments was in a biopharmaceutical company called I'm Clone Systems, a company that developed cancer drugs. Now, in the grand scale of her absurd fortune, Stewart wasn't very heavily invested in this company, iClone, I'm Clone. The shares that she owned, which she sold in December of 2001, were worth about $250,000. But the story is really about what happened next. A few days after Stewart sold her shares, the stock plummeted. The same shares that she had just sold for a quarter of a million dollars would have been worth just around 40 grand. Now, as it turns out, the timing of that sale wasn't just some lucky coincidence for her. She had sold her shares of I'm Clone because she knew something that most others didn't. She had inside information that the FDA, the Food and Drug Administration, was about to deny approval of the company's newest cancer drug. So Stewart made a move to cut her losses. And in the financial industry, this is what's known as insider trading, and it's illegal. Eventually, she was convicted and sentenced to five months in prison, which she served at the Alderson Federal Prison in West Virginia. Our scripture this morning also takes place in a prison. This one not in West Virginia, but Jerusalem. And the inmate wasn't some celebrity chef, but a prophet. Now, I will forgive you if this morning's reading from Jeremiah didn't grab your attention. It is, after all, a passage that describes in painstaking detail a real estate transaction. The sale of a farm in a suburb of Jerusalem more than 2,500 years ago. It seems pretty boring, to be honest. But I promise that when we put this story in some larger context, it's every bit as interesting as the saga of Martha Stewart. The story begins with a timestamp. It says that it's the 10th year of Judah's King Zedekiah, which was the 18th year of the reign of the Babylonian King Nebuchadnezzar. I don't expect you to have any idea what that actually means, but I did the math. And our story is taking place in 587 BCE. In other words, nearly six centuries before Jesus. I also don't expect you to recognize the historical significance of that year in Israel's history. 
So I'll tell you that it's the year before Jerusalem is conquered by the Babylonians. In other words, the Babylonian army is almost literally at the gates of Jerusalem and the writings on the wall. The Israelites are going to lose their homeland. And Jeremiah is stuck in prison, put there by his own king, Zedekiah, the king of Judah, Judah being the uh, name of the southern kingdom of Israel, which included Jerusalem within it. So why was Jeremiah in prison? Well, basically because Zedekiah didn't like his attitude. And he didn't know what to do with him. You see, Zedekiah really believed that Jeremiah was a prophet, a human being through whom God was speaking. But Zedekiah didn't like what Jeremiah was telling him. Let me give an example. Earlier in Jeremiah's story, before our reading today, God wants to convey just how angry they are with the disobedience of the Israelites. So God tells Jeremiah to go and buy a clay jar, to take it into the middle of the town where everyone can see, to smash the clay jar on the ground, and then say to everyone, just as I have smashed this jar beyond repair, so God will smash all of you in this entire city because of your disobedience. Yikes, right? You can imagine that didn't make Jeremiah a really popular guy. Now, as a sort of side note, I just want to acknowledge that uh, the fact that there are a lot uh, of violent threats and language attributed to God in Jeremiah and throughout the Bible, really. This can be really hard for some of us to read, myself included. And so I just want to encourage you not to read those passages literally. While I personally believe that God gets angry, just like I do, just like we all do, I do not believe that God actually smites or smashes anyone. End of side note. So, in part because of his righteous anger on behalf of God, Jeremiah ends up in prison with the king desperately hoping that God will send Jeremiah a new message. A message maybe that God will destroy the Babylonians after all and save Judah. And in our passage this morning, God does give Jeremiah a new message, a message of hope for the future. But it's not exactly that message that Zedekiah was hoping for. It wasn't a promise of a complete and instant deliverance but rather a promise that required slow and patient faithfulness. Now we enter into the heart of the passage. God tells Jeremiah that his cousin is about to visit him in prison and offer him a chance to buy a family farm. You see, in those days in Israel, when you wanted to sell a piece of property, things were different. There was no open real estate market, no realtors, no Zillow. Instead, a code of Jewish law commonly referred to as Jubilee Law, and we'll circle back uh, to more on Jubilee Law in just a bit. Jubilee Law dictated that you offer the property to your next of kin at a set price. This was actually intended as a safeguard for justice, a practice of keeping property in the same family 
to prevent some families from becoming destitute while other families buy up all of the good land. In other words, it was meant as a, a control against income inequality. So under Jubilee law, Jeremiah had a legal right to buy the land. But the question is, why would he? Jeremiah himself had been the one saying that God was planning to smash Judah and hand it over to the Babylonians. And at that point, of course, this land was going to be worthless to him. It belonged to the empire. But God tells Jeremiah, buy it. So he does. And then the story launches into all this minutia of Jeremiah signing the deeds, having them witnessed, weighing out the silver on scales, putting one in a clay jar, and so on and so forth. Those details are pretty boring to us today, but they serve a purpose in this story. Jeremiah isn't just buying the farm because he has a legal right to do it, or even because he feels an obligation to keep it in the family. He's doing it to make a public statement, a public declaration of faith in God's promise for redemption. God's promise to return the Israelites to this land again after their exile into Babylon. Through Jeremiah, God makes a promise to the Israelites. God says, houses, fields, and vineyards will again be bought in this land. Listen to how this promise is elaborated on at the end of this same chapter we read. This is from the Message Translation. It says, This is God's message. I will certainly bring this huge catastrophe on this people, but I will also usher in a wonderful life of prosperity. I promise. Fields are going to be bought again here. Yes, in this very country that you assume is going to end up desolate, gone to the dogs, unlivable, wrecked by the Babylonians. Yes, people will buy farms again. And legally, with deeds of purchase, sealed documents, proper witnesses, in the area around Jerusalem, around the villages of Judah, I will restore everything that was lost. Okay, so let's pull together these stories. These stories of, of Martha and Jeremiah. To start with, they both had inside information. Martha knew that the cancer drug was going to be denied. Jeremiah knew that the Babylonians were going to conquer Jerusalem, but also that God would return the land to the Israelites. Consequently, they both committed insider trading. That is, they both acted on the inside information they had in an economic transaction. Martha sold her, her shares of I Am Clone. Jeremiah bought the farm outside of Jerusalem. Now, part of what's ironic is that neither of them directly benefited from their insider trading. Martha Stewart paid fines and served jail time. But more than that, as it turned out, she also lost future profits. That cancer drug that was denied ended up being approved by the FDA a few years later, in 2004. 
and the company's stock rose to an all-time high. If she had just held on to her shares, they would have been worth about $350,000. In Jeremiah's case, the Israelites were under Babylonian rule for the next 50 to 70 years. And for all sorts of reasons, we can assume that he himself never returned to Jerusalem, never again saw that farm that he purchased. Now, even though they were both guilty of insider trading, their motives couldn't have been any different. Martha Stewart acted on the core axiom of the free market, of free market capitalism. Maximize profit. She acted in her self-interest to make as much money as possible. Jeremiah, on the other hand, acted on a different axiom. He acted on the core axiom of God's economy to maximize the potential for God's redeeming grace in the world. Jeremiah wasn't actually investing in property, in a farm. He was investing in God's promise for redemption. And in so doing, Jeremiah modeled for us what it looks like to make decisions grounded in God's economy of grace instead of allowing our economy of greed to drive our choices, often unconsciously. So Jeremiah's story provides us with a foundation. And now I want to turn to some other biblical passages that can teach us something about the practices of God's redemptive economy. Now, this list I'm about to give isn't meant to be exhaustive, but I want to name what I see as three core practices of God's redemptive economy. Abundance, liberation, and reparations. And for each of these practices, I'll name a biblical story that uh, helps illuminate it, and I'll give an example or a vision of how we as Christians can embody this practice today. First, abundance. Our economy tells us that all resources are scarce, and the implication is that we better get ours while we can, and then maybe get some more, just in case. This is, for example, why there was no toilet paper for the first month or two of the pandemic. But Scripture teaches us something different. Scripture tells us that God's economy is built on a communal perception of abundance. When the Israelites were wandering in the wilderness after God had freed them from slavery in Egypt, they started to get hungry and complained that there wasn't enough to eat. God listened to them and every day provided them with a bread that they came to call manna. There was only one instruction from God. Each day go out and gather as much as you need for today. That's it. Take only what you need and there will be enough. But some of the Israelites tried to gather more than they needed to save a little extra something for tomorrow, just in case. But when they did, it spoiled. The manna went bad with mold. 
When we think and act in ways that are rooted in that mindset of scarcity, our communities and our economies go bad. Now, just to clarify, to me, abundance in God's economy doesn't mean magical thinking. It doesn't mean that everyone can have as much as they want and God will just snap their fingers and magically make more. That's why I personally don't read uh, the gospel stories of, of Jesus' feeding stories as divine magic, but instead as miracles that involved cultivating a collective concept of abundance. So what does this collective abundance look like in practice for the church? In the U.S., something like 5,000 churches close every year. And between our changing demographics and the pandemic, that number is only expected to go higher in the next few years. There's a narrative of scarcity in the church these days. And the instinct is to try to hold on to what we have. But that's a false narrative. With God, there is always more abundance than we realize. Many of these churches that are going to close own buildings. In fact, in many states, Christian denominations are among the largest real estate holders in the entire state. Now imagine what we could do with all that property. We could start investing more in creative new expressions of ministry like Zhao. We could build affordable housing. We could start incubators for marginalized entrepreneurs and launch nonprofits that organize on local community issues. The possibilities are really endless if we think collectively and abundantly. The second practice of God's economy is liberation. In our American economy, we have a very robust set of financial laws and practices that dictate who has access to capital. They're very complicated, and I don't pretend to understand them all, but let me see if I can simplify them for you in one sentence. It goes something like this. If you have money, you can get access to more money. And if you don't have much money, then you can't. The practical outcome, of course, is that the rich get richer and the rest of us end up working for them and buying their products with few alternatives. But Jesus's teaching contradicts these stratifying economic practices. Jesus points towards liberation. Jesus points toward liberation from oppressive relationships and debt. In Luke 4, 18, Jesus proclaims, I have come to bring good news to the poor, to release the prisoners, to liberate the oppressed, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Jesus' words are an allusion in part to the Jubilee year described in Leviticus. Every 50 years under Jubilee law, which remember I mentioned back in Jeremiah's story, the Israelites were supposed to declare a Jubilee year, a year when slaves and prisoners were set free, when debts were forgiven, and freedom for all people was proclaimed throughout their nation. 
So Jesus is declaring that the Jubilee has arrived. A time of God's liberation for all people has come. A time when all of God's people will have access to the resources they need to live into the fullness of who God has created them to be. And while there was no doubt a spiritual aspect to Jesus' proclamation, it wasn't only a spiritual statement. And it certainly wasn't a metaphor. Jesus' ministry makes it apparent that he meant political and social and economic liberation too. So what can we churches do to bring economic liberation to our communities? I want to lift up one example for you. A Lutheran ELCA church in southwest Detroit called Grace in Action. From its inception, Grace in Action has been committed to bringing jobs with dignity and fair wages to its surrounding community. And they've done that by training, incubating, and sustaining worker-owned cooperatives and youth collectives. These co-ops give people the power of ownership, the ability to have control over their future, and a way to invest deeply in the community where they live. They begin to liberate people from the system of economic oppression that harvests their value as workers without seeing their value as human beings. That's one example of what it looks like for the church to be about economic liberation. Finally, we come to the third practice of God's economy, reparations. Our economy demonstrates that there are relatively small consequences for economic injustice. Take Martha Stewart, for example. She basically stole around $250,000. The consequences? She was fined $30,000 and spent five months in a minimum security prison in West Virginia. And just for frame of reference, if you stole, say, an iPhone worth $600 from a Best Buy in West Virginia, by law, the minimum prison sentence is six months. But once again, the gospel contradicts this minimization of the cost of injustice. Instead, the gospel advocates for reparations in response to injustice. Luke 19 tells the story of Zacchaeus, a tax collector for the Roman Empire. In first century Israel-Palestine, people paid taxes to individuals like Zacchaeus, who had been contracted by the empire to collect taxes in a specific geographic region. Zacchaeus would have had to personally pay the entire tax up front. In other words, the total sum of all the tax due from everyone in that region. So it goes without saying then that Zacchaeus was rich since he could afford to front all that money. Then someone like him would have likely hired subcontractors who would do the grunt work, going town to town, making collections. His profit margin was whatever he could collect over and above what he had already paid out to the empire up front. Simply put, tax collectors like Zacchaeus made their profit by overtaxing those 
who could least afford it. Or, more bluntly, they stole from the poor. Given the depths of the injustices perpetrated by Zacchaeus, we can understand why the crowd wonders indignantly, what business does Jesus have getting cozy with this crook as they watch him interacting with Zacchaeus? But Jesus understood something that they didn't. Zacchaeus needed to be reconciled. He had alienated himself from God and his neighbors. So it's then and there that Zacchaeus makes reparations, both by repaying what he's stolen with interest and by redistributing half of his remaining wealth. And when you do the rough calculation of those payouts, it's likely that Zacchaeus went from being one of the richest men in Jericho to perhaps being just as poor as the people who he had stolen from. Jesus' response to him is simple. He says, today salvation has come to this household. Reparations are part of the pathway to redemption. Reparations are part of God's redemptive economy of grace. So what do reparations for the church look like today? In his book, Decolonizing Wealth, Edgar Villanueva challenges foundations throughout the U.S. to voluntarily set aside 10% of their assets to create a reparations fund from which black and indigenous people could receive grants to create their own wealth and to restore justice through ownership of their own homes and businesses. Maybe it's time for the church to consider something similar. What would happen if the church, both locally and nationally, came together to create real plans with real actions to make real reparations? Some have already started this conversation. Take a look at the Minnesota Council of Churches Truth and Reparations Project for an example. So, to recap, Three practices of God's redemptive economy of grace are abundance, liberation, and reparations. In each of these practices, and in the biblical texts that support them, we can clearly see the themes of redemption and grace at work. I want to make one final point, and it has to do with the cost of this work. God's grace is free for each of us. But following Jesus demands that we give up our lives. And like Zacchaeus, the cost may feel especially high for some of us. And like the Israelites in the wilderness, we may find ourselves feeling anxious that there won't be enough for us. And like Jeremiah, we may not live to see the full returns on our investment. But ultimately, discipleship means trusting that there is no price too high for our small part in building God's economy of redemptive grace. Amen.